Aftermath is brought to you by Art of Problem Solving, where we develop educational resources for motivated students, including textbooks, an online school, in-person learning centers, and a variety of online applications. We build the tools we wish we had when we were students. Welcome to Aftermath, where we talk to fascinating people in and around the STEM world about where they've been, where they are now, and how their passion for math helped them get there. I'm your host, Richard Russick. My guest today is Mina Bopana, head of university at Interviewing I.O., an advocate for diversity in STEM fields. Mina's father was one of the very first Art of Problem Solving community members. At the time, I didn't know he was past his middle and high school years. After he suggested a number of dazzling solutions to problems on our site and in our math jams, I asked him what school he was at, wondering how he learned these skills. He then replied that his most recent schooling was completing his PhD at MIT. (laughs) (laughs) He and I would go on to co-author a textbook, but before that, I met the rest of his family, including his daughter, Mina. I quickly found that the apple didn't fall far from that mathematical tree. Our paths crossed again at National Math Counts, where everyone heard her and the rest of the New York team celebrate their Spirit Awards singing on stage. Don't worry, Mina, I won't ask you to sing again today, but you're welcome to if you'd like to. (laughs) Uh, Today, she'll talk about growing up in a mathematical family, attending Harvard, where she learned as much about advocacy as she did about computer science, and arriving at her current position helping connect talented job searchers with elite tech companies. You're going to hear about the importance of role models for aspiring young mathematicians, learn some strategies for becoming an effective advocate for change, and find out how redefining the job interview can help make the world a better place. Welcome to the show, Mina. So great to be here. Excellent. I'd like to start with a story that ties together two of your great interests, mathematics and righting wrongs. You're back in fifth or sixth grade and you dare question what was being presented in the classroom about a particular decimal representation? (laughs) Yeah, from what I heard, uh, your parents even had to get a little bit involved. Now, what's your version of the story? So I remember exactly what you're talking about. It was sixth grade in Miss Aziz's class, and we were sitting there, and uh, at some point I was really excited about the fact that 0.9 repeating is equal to one and concepts of around infinity. Mm -hmm. So I said, exactly. And so then she basically said, you know, 0.9 repeating is really, it's really close to one, but it's different than one. See, they're different. (laughs) And so then I proceeded to come in every day for the next week with a different proof of why 0.9 repeating was equal to one. I was working with my dad on this. And then she didn't, she said, yeah, everything in your proof looks correct, but, but they're still different. So this just drove me nuts. So then I started circling a petition around the sixth grade where people would sign that 0.9 repeating was equal to one. The way that I see this is, um, yeah. And so we had a petition and then when my dad came in for a parent-teacher conference, he mentioned this, and then she said, you know, I'm just really worried. Like, Mina's so passionate. This is great. I'm just really worried she's confusing the other kids. Uh, so can... that was how it ended. Excellent, excellent. So did you win? 
So I think that really my dad was wiser than me in that he knew that if a teacher says something, you don't really question it at the end of the day. And it wasn't a battle worth fighting. (laughs) Did you learn that lesson? Not at the time, <laughs> or maybe not to this day. <laughs> Excellent. I, 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 I might take your side on that one. Um, <laughs> did you convince, how many of the students did you convince? I think the students were genuinely confused because I was like really, really passionate that this thing was happening, but that these two things were equal. And then the teacher was saying no. So I don't know what they thought. That's, that's They thought I was crazy for sure. (laughs) Uh, I'd love to ask one of them what happened. Um, An interesting (laughs) story from their point of view. Uh, So... Moving on, uh, given your interest in identity issues in STEM, I'd like to dig a little bit deeper into how you became aware of those issues, both for yourself and then and then for others. First, I'd like you to talk a bit about how you came to identify yourself as a as a mathy person. So, I be- that's that started pretty early in my life. Again, I think I, I'm just so fortunate to have a dad that what that is a mathematician, and so starting from age four or even three, my dad basically, so I, I got bored really easily. And so in an effort to entertain me, basically when we were walking for the bus or even when he was like giving me a bath when I was like two or three, (laughs) he started just telling me random math facts as a way to sort of keep me occupied uh-huh. So, uh, yeah, we, and I'm embarrassed to say this, we actually had, there were, there were math baths. That's what we called them. And Beautiful. he would basically start teaching me math. So I remember in preschool, I went in one day and we were learning counting. So not, not counting in probability, but mm-hmm. just counting. And so there were some crackers and the teacher was like, one, two, three. And I was like, one, three, nine. (laughs) So she was was impressed, but I think ultimately I, I, and I didn't even know multiplication very well. Right. Mm -hmm. But my dad was already teaching me. I remember we were doing the sieve of Aristophanes and that sieve when I was maybe four or five and he was Mm -hmm. helping me. He was basically my mental calculator, but the concept was there. I understood the concept of let's find prime numbers. What is prime? What is composite? So I think it, what was cool about that was it kind of shows that you can really teach proofs at a really young age, even before the arithmetic is mm-hmm. there, kind of the opposite of what elementary education is. So you can give the intuition for these really deep facts. Right. And I, and so, and just the last thing on that note was I remember when I was again, around that age, my dad gave me a stumper, like a, a really hard problem just because I was begging him for a math problem, but it was my bedtime. So he just like wanted to get me to go to sleep. (laughs) So he said, okay, what's five to the fourth. And, and then like the, and then I was quiet for maybe half an hour. So he basically figured that I'd given up. And then all of a sudden I scream across the house, 625! <laughs> oh, and then he knew he'd created a monster. 
So how about gender issues in mathematics? When did you first become aware of the issues that women have to deal with? Absolutely. So I think that upon first identifying as a mathy person at that really young age, I was not aware. So from age like four or five to age 12-ish, right? I think age 12, 13 is when all kids become pretty aware of their gender, right? But I think that for me, there was a moment of realizing that really there are so few women in, in, in these things, in the mathy world, when I was at Math Count States uh, the first time in sixth grade, and or maybe this was this was seventh grade. So seventh grade Math Count States, I placed 14th in the state. So and none of the top 10 were women. And the way that the way that Math Counts works is that the top 10 people get called up to do the countdown round. So like the lightning fast round and essentially because and they never asked us for our gender at the beginning of the test which was probably a good thing because asking gender before tests is, is actually really bad for other reasons but basically they they got themselves into a pickle because they had no way of knowing who the top girl was in new york state and they had a prize this was at rensselaer polytech institute rpi in new york they had a prize for the top girl and the top boy and so they had no way of knowing who the top girl was. So basically, they started running through the roster and saying, like, uh, blah, blah, blah. Are you a girl? Blah. Oh, are my you goodness. Blah, blah. Are you a girl? And then it comes to, Bopana, Mina, are you a girl? And then I had to stand up in my seat in front of the entire auditorium <laughs> and, like, be like, yeah. <laughs> and then go accept my prize. And, and it didn't really feel like an an accomplishment. I mean, I was, I was proud. I think that it, I think that I did use the fact that there, that there were so few, like I'm very competitive. Right. So I was like, Oh, I'm the top girl. So part of me was really happy, but I think part of me was also like, wow, this is weird. How, how did the math prize for girls influence you? Just to, just to let our listeners know the math prize for girls is a, a competition in, in, for very high-end middle school and high-end high school young women who are interested in mathematics. And Mina's father started this competition. And before before I let you dive in there, I'll talk a little bit about my first interaction with that is when, when your father told me about it, I was sitting here thinking, a contest just for girls and you're going to give all these scholarships? I know what I would think back when I was a high school student. I'd think I certainly want to go to that contest, but I'd be a little ticked off that I couldn't compete myself as a boy for mm -hmm. all that money and I wasn't sure well I, I certainly didn't at the time completely understand why this was a necessary thing so I go to the contest uh, I was there the first year I gave a talk to the parents um, while while the participants were taking the tests and then I went to the awards ceremony and I met a, a young woman there from West Virginia I think she was a senior in high school and so I, I asked her you know when did you first get involved in contests you know why do you like math contests and she said oh well, I, I don't I don't like contests. I like math, but I don't like contests. I said, hmm. oh, okay, all right. So did you come up here to meet with some of your friends, some people you know from online or from, from math camps? And she said, I, I don't know anybody who's here. I'm like, okay, so you don't like contests. You don't know anyone who's here. Why did you come here? And she said, this is the first time I've, never seen, I've ever seen a girl, another girl, who likes math. 
And I'm like, oh, I wow. get it. I get it. And the sad thing is, <laughs> you know, I, I, the sad thing is I'll bet she had. She just hadn't ever met another girl who was willing to self-identify publicly as liking math. Mm-hmm. Um, but how did how did this – so you were uh, maybe a sophomore or, or – Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. So my first year, I was a sophomore in high school and my dad was starting this contest. I think I was really excited. I was helping volunteer at registration. I was taking the test, but kind of on an unofficial Mm -hmm. basis, you know, winning a lot of prize money when your dad writes the questions. (laughs) A little frowned on. Yeah. So I was basically participating unofficially Mm -hmm. and it was a ton of fun. I think it, I think I was in the category of knowing a lot of people there. So it was a lot of my friends from math camps, mm-hmm. from math contests too. Uh, so it was a giant reunion, if you will. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, we all got dinner afterwards. I think what I, I think math prize is the speaking of competition and and the woman young woman that told you that she didn't like competitions math prize for girls to me feels like it's the least uh least adversarial competition Mm -hmm. i've ever been to which is really impressive given the high stakes of prize money right like twenty five thousand dollars for the top person i believe and so and might have gone up since and essentially i think that the uh yeah there's just something so special when you bring together this group of women you know every year there's a games night for the actual event where all of the girls really become friends with each other they they stay in touch and and they uh the award ceremony i think is what impacted me the most you asked me you know what mm-hmm. about math prize influenced me the most i think probably having role models so every year math prize brings in women often uh academics so professors and the like in fields that are not necessarily just pure math, but also related fields, computer science, physics, etc. And I think just seeing those women up on the stage, it has a subliminal effect on you, right? Because uh, even unconsciously, it's like, okay, well, now I see someone like me doing this thing. So, so maybe I can do it. And I think that 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 was the effect it had on me. I think that I I think that my dad ultimately created Math Prize for Girls. I don't, I mean, I don't know exactly why he created it, but I think that part of seeing me grow up in this environment kind of made him more aware of the issues and probably made him more inclined to start something like Math Prize for Girls. So I think that uh, particularly if that was, if that was around, you know, during that seventh grade incident, I think, and you know, if it were around earlier, I think I would have benefited even more. So I can, I 100% see the value, and and it's personally influenced me. And and just having a dad that cares so so much, not like you know, not just about my own math education, not just about uh, math education period, but specifically about the gender gap in math was inspiring to me. So I think, uh, and. And the way that it influenced me in another way was that it influenced me really to get involved directly in gender and math issues. So right. my dad is totally my, uh, you know, a huge role model in my life. Yeah, that's, that's super important that people uh, not just complain, but go out and do something. So next, separate from gender, when did you start to become aware of the issue of, of privilege? Yeah, so 
That's a great question. I think that I think that I was a pretty uh, pretty arrogant kid, or at least a very confident kid. And and obviously there's a there's a line, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that in um, I think that something that math competitions does to you that I don't love is that you're very used if you are in the top echelon of people, right? If you're then you're going to feel like you are better than other people. And I think that that it that is a dis, like that is a distinction. I think is it causal or is it the other way around? Like, that's a great that's a great question. Yeah, for me, I think that it probably some of both, but I think that for me this idea of everything is a number. So I think for a lot of my life, everything was just a number to me. So my score on math counts was me. And I think that I, I took, I took math competitions and I, I'm so competitive and I was so into it. And I took it a little bit too far where that, like where that, uh, score was my own like worth, if you will. And so and meeting yeah. people who are way better than you didn't chill you out on that? That's a great question. I think I think when it came to that, so you mentioned that how I won the Math Count Spirit Award. Uh-huh. So I always went in being like, okay, well, I want to win something. So I knew I wasn't going to win. I knew that the New York State team probably wasn't going to win first prize at National Math Count. But I, so as soon as that happened, then I went to, okay, we're going to win the Spirit Award at National Math Counts. And the same thing happened at Armel. I tried many years to win the Penn State Armel Song Contest. So I basically created a New York City math team acapella group uh, within New York City math team. <laughs> and we tried year after year. And yet we, were kept, we kept being beat by Lehigh Valley, which really bothered me because Lehigh Valley was also winning the overall competition. <laughs> right. <laughs> so frustrating you can't win the overall competition and the song competition i later met this guy um at harvard yeah. who was essentially doing the same thing at lehigh and was doing acapella at harvard so i basically got one up oh, <laughs> that's beautiful by someone on the lehigh valley team and i think that that i mean i pr- i think that so in terms of of my ego and having that you know like brought down a little bit harvard certainly made me aware that like you know there you know if you think you're amazing there there are more yeah. there are even more amazing people on any given measure right so you just meet people who are best in the world at all kinds of things mm-hmm. and uh and so i think that that definitely uh made me more humble but then i think in terms of the privilege piece uh yeah also also in college also in high school though so when i was in high school um so there are a few, there are a few different moments where I feel like I, uh, I kind of stepped out of the prescribed path for me, and one of them was in high school. So in high school, I started this math club at a school that was under uh, for underprivileged girls, and so basically I looked at my own school and I thought well, we already have a math team. We already have a coach. And then I looked at the math counts uh, chapter team in Manhattan. And I saw that only 
like 20 schools and all of Manhattan had a math counts team. And so I thought, how many other schools in New York don't have these math teams? So I literally, I, I mean, I, uh, I was lucky enough to have a uh, personal connection through my dad to this school. But from there, I drove the entire execution of, of starting a math club at the school girls prep and got a lot of my friends to do it with me. And every week we'd basically go teach these girls. And I think that what I realized is that the, their potential was so high, like they were so smart and yet they didn't know basic math fundamentals, like subtracting negative numbers from each other. So I, and that's just a function of their school. They don't have that. They don't Mm -hmm. have like, you went to a couple really special schools, right? You go to Dalton, you go to Hunter, and this is before Mm -hmm. we're even talking about Harvard. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think that that really opened my eyes and, and yeah, I'm not sure if I can point to a particular moment where I learned about my own privilege, but I think that I, and the reason I mentioned privilege is, is again, because of my dad, because of feeling like, and because of realizing that I had every opportunity, community and support in the world. Like I think that, and, and there's no, and I think, you know, as with all parenting, right. It's all about, it's all about caring and being encouraging. Right. So parenting, coaching, whatever you call it. My dad kept his file. He had an entire filing cabinet of every practice test I'd ever taken, every score I took on that test. He would always time me. He would always come into my room when time was up. Like he was intense about competition, but he was also just so excited for me. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it sounds like that intensity for competition that from him might have come from you. Like you were really interested in the contest and he's helping you or is it the other way around? Oh, my dad is very competitive okay. on his own. So <laughs> he, I remember we have these matching, uh, we have these matching plaques from, so he has a Maryland math league plaque and I have a New York mm. math league plaque. I can show you, I, we have a picture of them side by side. They did not change the design in 30 years of this plaque. <laughs> yeah. I've got an Alabama one. <laughs> I yeah. know what it looks like. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, so I think that they very much, I mean, it very much came from my dad, but yeah. was driven by me. So my dad's also really into chess, for example, and he tried playing chess with me and I just never picked it up. I mean, it didn't help that he did not take it easy on me and he's like <laughs> 1800 and I was like four. And so <laughs> that didn't go very well. Uh, no. Um. <laughs> Now, speaking of privilege, let's let's move on to college. I understand you let both of your parents down with your choice of college, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I went to I went to tour Harvard, and my mom was like, she was like, "This is so pretentious," because both of my parents went to MIT. Mm-hmm. Was and, she right? Yeah. Was she? In a lot of ways, <laughs> but it was also like a really great nurturing environment. Yeah. So. <laughs> so, what did you find when you get there? Yeah, so I I went in, I think probably, definitely not, uh, definitely not the best, but very prepared mm-hmm. when it came to math, right? I think I was arguably among the most prepared students, right? In ter- I'd taken classes at Columbia in high school and, you know, et cetera, all the math team stuff. Then I go in and there are four choices of, math classes for freshman year there's um and it's basically a tracking system so there's and the the top two there there's math 25 and then there's math 55 i have no idea why they're named that way okay 
55 just seems more scary. And even 55 is the, is the super famous. Right. Um, so 55 is the most intense. People say it's like the most intense math class in the country, blah, blah, blah. You're like, you will not have a life. You will stay up all night. You will not have any friends. And this is my first semester at Harvard. And I'm like, I don't want any of that. <laughs> and so I took math 25. And I think that ultimately a lot of, I mean, math 25 is a very significant amount of work. Don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. But a lot of that was overhyped. So for example, on the math department website, it was listed as taking 60 hours per week. This is the official math department website. Mm, that's ridiculous. Which is just false, too. Yeah. Like, talking to people that took it, that TA'd it, it's just false. And so, I mean, it depends on the year and who's teaching it. Why do you but, think they do that? Like, yeah. Just so, trying to scare people away? I don't, don't know if that's there. intentional. I don't know if that, but I actually, so yes, so... They're not trying to scare people away, but the I think the math department philosophy is basically that they don't want to be in a position where a student gets in over their head because then that creates a lot of um, work. Yeah, work. <laughs> so when students are really stressed, what do you yeah. do? It's not, you know, if it's halfway into the semester, how do you uh, how do you take them a notch down? Not to mention that they don't want to they don't. They don't want to be responsible if a student just gets super, super stressed out. Like they just don't want to, they don't want to be, um, they don't want to deal with any of that. So as a result, they basically encourage you to take lower math classes than like, than maybe is appropriate. Mm -hmm. So, and the advising is basically very, very low since it's gotten yeah. a lot better. So I'm going to credit, like, so I'm going to say like the math department has gotten a lot better. Uh, I mean, I'm not there, but that's what I've heard is that the, the department is changing. The culture is changing. So they hired a woman, actually, female tenured professor for, uh, you know, now that's the, the one and only female tenured professor. So, yeah, I mean, talk about her a little bit. Lauren, Lauren, you're talking about Lauren <laughs> Williams. And I recently saw an article about her taking this position. And you were mentioned in that article as well. Uh, mm -hmm. because of your work at Harvard, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But I, I do want to note that this is not the first time the two of you have appeared in print together. If you go and look at Art of Problem Solving Volume 1, the two of your names show up in the same sentence in the thanks section of the book uh, for, your shared ability, <laughs> for your shared ability to find errors in our work. Uh, Lauren was one of the very first people to work all the way through the AOPS books. Uh, so, wow, yeah. I did not know that. Yes, so... You do have you do have that in common with her as well, um, but yeah. Talk All a kinds bit of, of random facts are getting dug <laughs> up today. <laughs> yep. Uh, talk a bit about uh, about your work in the math department there. Yeah. So I think that essentially, I the there was a combination. I think that a lot of it stemmed from this basic, uh, basically what I can't otherwise term as elitism. There was a lot of elitism in the department such that it made you feel unwelcome if you didn't take Math 55 your freshman year. So those were sort of the golden boys. And I can say boys because they were all guys. The Math 55 class my year was all guys. How many of and them are there? I think there were something like 15. Okay. 15 guys. All guys. And, and no, yeah. And, and again, since it's changed. But the, that was how it was for like the three years surrounding mm -hmm. my uh, my class. And 
And so as a result, I felt like there wasn't a lot of support. So I took Math 25. I did really well in it. And at no point did anyone, I don't think anyone was ever discouraging. Like, first of all, I had an amazing professor for Math, math 25, Professor Gross. Like, he's amazing. He's since, uh, I believe, retired and, uh, you know, amazing, fantastic lecturer. So I think that's important. Got me really excited. But after doing well in that course, I didn't think, I didn't feel like there was an obvious next step. And there wasn't a, there wasn't anyone that said, hey, good job. You just aced this course. Like, you should become a math major. You should do this, blah, blah, blah. And then, so I remember sophomore year, there were all these, like, advising events, which mm -hmm. basically helps you pick a major. So it was, like, this big deal, pick a major. And so I go to, like, the math department corner, and they're basically, and I was told, math is a great major. Computer science is also a great major. So basically, whatever. <laughs> and then I went to the computer science department, and there was like, there was like a photo booth. There was Ben and Jerry's ice cream. There were balloons. There were people telling you about the like ten reasons why you should do CS. Right. All of this, right. of course, is sponsored by like companies or whatever. There's just like a ton of stuff there, and. I was like, well, I'm kind of torn because I like computer science and I like math, but computer science department seems pretty cool. Right. So I pretty much arbitrarily chose a major. I chose computer science arbitrarily. And then once I had chosen computer science, I realized that I felt pretty shut out of the math department, even though I still loved math, wanted to take math classes. But if you weren't a math major, you actually literally could not get a entry into the math lounge so there was a math lounge and mm -hmm. it was for math majors only and in practice the way that this was enforced was that there was an administrator who would go around and if you were not a uh, white or asian male she would basically ask you if you were a math major and then you were asked to leave so the interesting so there was just an assumption the way and and i had female math major friends who were asked on a weekly basis, are you a math major? Are you a math major? Are you a math major? And that really took a toll on them. Yeah. And they're like, yes, we are math majors. Please just like, also, yeah. So there are a lot of problems with that. Um, and uh, yeah, so as a result, I, and yet I, I feel like my whole community leading up to college was all about math, right? So uh, I ended up, I ended up being pretty involved. I was leading actually the Harvard Math Association, just the general math association. Uh, you know, we did like Putnam Prep. We did all sorts of fun stuff. And Despite then, not being a math major yourself. Exactly, yeah. okay. exactly. And then from there, I started an organization called Harvard Gender Inclusivity in Math. And basically the idea with that was, well, actually I didn't start it right away. It took a long time. So basically the first thing that happened was I, I started to feel like there was a gender gap, but I couldn't really put my finger on it. So I said, I think we couldn't should do put a your finger on it. Now, wait a second. There are 15 guys in 55 yeah. and zero, zero women. I can I put my finger on it. <laughs> so let me put it this way. There was a, the math department had a very clear reason as to why this was the case, which was that they argued that essentially there were not enough qualified women coming out of high school, which is frankly pretty insulting that because 
presumably Harvard is pretty good at picking the most talented people. So basically what you're saying is that there aren't enough talented women coming out of high school point blank. And so that was their argument, right? Which then conveniently removes them of blame. And then, so my goal was to put a finger on what was wrong specifically with the math department culture that was leading to this. So more like the cause, right? The symptoms were clear. I agree with you. And then we did a survey. So we surveyed all of the uh, undergraduates in the department and looked at gender disparities. So we looked at disparities and we found that women felt that they could ask professors for fewer letters of recommendation on average. These are all math majors. So we found that women felt like less comfortable talking, you know, less comfortable with their professors, Mm -hmm. like had fewer uh, role models, basically. They felt that they were less comfortable in the department than men. They felt that they were less comfortable in the common spaces, no surprise. Right. And they, uh, but they wanted to be involved. So there there was this gap. Were there other explicit things like this, this issue of being asked over and over and over again if you're a math major? Were there other obvious things that you could point at and point back to the math department and say, you know, you need to fix the fact that there are no girls' bathrooms in this building or something like that? So that was a major issue at Princeton for a really long time. Uh, I forgot her name. One of the professors there, her issue was bathrooms. She mm-hmm. spent, like maybe her career, you know, in addition to her math career, advocating for bathrooms Mm -hmm. in in Princeton math department. So, yeah, so I think that my issue was this, was this whole uh, kicking women out of the common room, women and minorities for no reason. So I remember I was in a meeting with a bunch of people from the math department and all of a sudden there, uh, I, so it's like this very, very bureaucratic meeting, right? And it's going on forever. And it's like an hour in and I and I just suggest, you know, have we considered instead of having someone go around, have we thought about putting up a sign that says that the math common room is only for math majors? And everyone was like, I guess we could do that. And I was like, are you kidding me? We've been sitting here for an hour. What is this? And And the stated reason was always that there was a limited supply of coffee. So, you know, it's really, uh, it's really not okay if these, you know, these riffraff non-math majors are stealing our coffee because the math department, Harvard math department really can't afford coffee. Like, (laughs) I've seen their endowment numbers. I think they can cover it, but you know, you know, mathematicians are just a machine to turn coffee into (laughs) theorems. So you need to have the coffee. So, yeah, they might yeah. not be all wrong about this. Yeah, and then I think you're explicit. Yeah, so the question about what was happening that's explicit. I mean, I think there's been a lot of talk in in general about gender issues, a lot of stuff about like unconscious bias, so less explicit. But I think that you're so right to ask this question about what is explicit. There's so many instances of explicit things that are bordering on harassment, that are bordering on, uh, you know, that are harassment rather. And so I think there's so much harassment that happens and uh, sexual harassment Mm -hmm. that is. And they're just, uh, yeah, they're just countless stories. And I think that that's important to always keep in mind too, right? So when you're thinking about like, hmm, why are women leaving the math department? Why are women leaving the tech industry? 
uh, is it a bunch of unconscious factors? Or maybe there's a guy that's repeatedly hitting all this woman every single day at work. Like there can be really obvious cues as right. well that we're also missing, right? And I think Me Too has really brought light to that. Okay. What avenues of advocacy did you find actually worked? That's a great question. So I think that one person told told it to me pretty, uh, pretty well, which is, so the first thing was data. So the, that was step one, right? is mathematicians, no matter how many stories you present to them, you have to show them the numbers. So the fact that we literally had data that showed that it was this cultural problem in the math department, it wasn't just that there were not enough women coming in at the beginning. That was huge for for starting to turn the tide of opinion. But how do you and dispel, so you go to them with the data that says, okay, women are less comfortable <laughs> asking for recommendations. And you know, I can dispel that if I'm if I want to with, oh, women are just less likely, you know, to lean in and in, in the verbiage <laughs> and you know, to to put themselves out there. How do you deflect that? Yeah, so I that's a great question. I think that we I don't know if we necessarily deflected that counter argument. I think that it was more just like we had like ten stats like mm -hmm. that. And so, again, with, like, not feeling comfortable, not, like, there, it's hard to argue. With, I mean, it's definitely possible to argue against it. So I'm not convinced that that right then and there convinced the math professors. But I think that the other thing was that the, uh, the math department was already under considerable amounts of pressure to change because they had no, no tenured female yeah. professors specifically. So of the ranks of t tenured professors, there were none. Now we're going, you know, now there is going to be one, which is amazing and going to have a huge effect on the department. But basically, um, yeah, so I think that the fact that there was already, um, we couldn't, we basically, we couldn't outright, uh, like, it was a, it was a process because we didn't want to, we wanted to work with the department. And to this day, I think that the department, you know, we worked with them successfully. And I think that, so one mistake, that, I think that this is actually, this is a bit of a tangent, but so Malcolm Gladwell has this amazing podcast on why, uh, why student activism at Princeton to remove Woodrow Wilson from the name of a, Woodrow Wilson is a terrible racist, remove him from the uh, public policy school. Mm -hmm. And, his argument was basically that student advocate ad activists are doing, they have great intentions and they're very idealistic, but they're using all the wrong strategies to get actual change. So I think that there are countless student movements that I can point to, right? Um, that just are not strategic, right? So what are the, what are that, the mistakes? Yeah. So I think that the, um, so I think that, the mistake is assuming that reason is going to work or at least um, so actually, yeah. So I think that there's a more specific mistake and I think that that's um, needing to pick your battles. So at, during my time at Harvard, there was a movement to, to there's this really strange concept at Harvard. So you have houses so instead of dorms, we call them houses. Harvard renames everything. So we have houses and then renamed the 
there was a professor living in each dorm, right, to sort of create community. And they were called house masters, which really <laughs> had pretty yeah. bad connotations back to slavery, right? Yeah. And and so I definitely don't – I'm not sure what I would have done, but I do think that there are probably some higher priority things than changing the name of house masters. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's potentially – like, I don't, personally, I don't, and maybe this is really bothers other people, right? I don't know, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and I'm also not in the group that would be offended, particularly right. by the word housemasters. But I essentially feel that there is an, a little bit of an over-focus on, on these small things, on these, on words, right? I don't really care what words people use as long as the actions are there. So I think that I was... Um, so yeah, I think that I was, and and maybe one of the other mistakes is, is alienating the very people that you need to convince, right? So I I think that the other, I think that ultimately I realized that we're a bunch of students, and so we needed to ally with the professors, and we actually found a lot of professors in, um, we actually had allies in adjacent departments, so you know the computer right. science department, the applied math department, and so essentially really just acknowledging our own limitations as a as a student group right and then those allies understand a little bit better where the levers are yeah and i think ultimately the the change happened in backdoor faculty meetings that i'll never be exactly privy to right yeah when they're pulling those levers Mm -hmm. so as as you're coming out of harvard like how did your thought about an eventual career evolve while you're there. I mean, you're at Harvard, so of course you're going to go to Goldman Sachs, or of course you're going to go to <laughs> Silicon Valley and sell advertisements on the internet or something like this. Like, how How is it? Is it hard to choose something that isn't obviously prestigious that everybody else is doing? Yeah, absolutely. So that's a great question and something that I thought about a lot. I think that there, I think that yes, um, and yet the times that I've chosen the thing that isn't the thing that everybody else is doing, isn't the prestigious thing, has have been some of the best decisions of my life. But it's a but it it depends. So I think that there's a middle ground that you have to walk because you also need to remember that as a student, you're uh, or as a recent graduate rather, your job is to gain skills. So I think that I was leaving Harvard so pumped to change the world, right? And yet I realized that I probably wasn't, actually, I didn't realize this. I thought I was going to. So I took a job as an engineer, um, and I can go into my thought process there. But anyway, I ended up as an engineer at a, an education startup called Clever. So I was really going for mission-oriented there, mm-hmm. right? I think that, and so I ended up at, at Clever, and I, um, and I thought I was going to be able to, I was like, well, I fixed the math department diversity problem. First of all, I didn't fix it, but um, <laughs> well, I fixed it. So now I can fix tech diversity in about six months. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. And that didn't happen. No. So I, I realized that that there was just this enormous web of you know power and influence, even more complex potentially than than Harvard math when I arrived here on on diversity and tech. So I think basically my mission was go into Silicon Valley. And then change it from within. And I think that's still still somewhat my strategy. And I think, but I also think that there were times. So yeah, so so I think that the 
going out of college, I did a somewhat traditional thing. Like I, I did, I was an engineer at a startup, pretty common. Um, it was pretty un- clever, was a little bit of an unusual choice. And uh, it was, I, I really, bad, I loved the mission. I loved the people. I think I potentially could have um, optimized a little bit more for learning skills, right? So I think I was mm-hmm. so focused on the mission of the company I was going to work at when my job at that point in my career was to learn as much engineering as possible. So I think being clear on and, and making that balance um, and, and the Meaning, time that, yeah. Does that mean like when you got there, the position you were in was not the strictly learning engineer position that you might in retrospect have chosen? Oh, I was, I was a full-time engineer and I was learning a ton. I think all I meant is that um, when I was choosing companies, I wasn't choosing companies based on which is the best at engineering. I was choosing companies okay. based on which is making the change that I want to see in the world. And it's a, it's a fine line, right? Cause you, I, I didn't necessarily want to work for Facebook, right. <laughs> selling advertisements, but I think I potentially could have, um, could have learned, could have learned more. Maybe. I don't know. I, I've heard people decry the <laughs> attitude in Silicon Valley that a lot of people coming in there as you know, new people to the Silicon Valley mm-hmm. or people coming out of school, viewing their career selection as building a portfolio as opposed to building a career. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess these observations you're making could, could be on either side of that line. I think the people who are complaining might be complaining more about uh, people strictly optimizing for the number of options they have in different companies, but <laughs> that's um, yeah, that that's true. And I think that the the real brave point was then after Clever when I when I kind of diverged completely. So, diverged completely from from what from, you mean from engineering or from yeah, uh, and also it was the first big risk I'd ever took, right? So Clever was a startup, but it was like a very well funded startup, mm-hmm. you know, Siri, you know. 200 people, coconut water in the fridges. Like you've got, you know, you've got all the perks of a tech company, and and I think that the 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 real risk I took was leaving Clever to join as I guess the fourth employee, the sixth person mm-hmm. at interviewing IO. At the time, we were crammed into a room at WeWork, and uh, okay. and yeah, there was a. So and I, what yeah. made you what made you take that leap? So what made me take that leap was the fact that even though I guess and again this goes back to our debate, right? I guess building a portfolio is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. I was not as excited about that. Like mm-hmm. I wasn't that excited about building up a a portfolio of engineering skills or of uh, things, to, things on my resume. So I was just so excited about what interviewing IO was doing and the potential impact that I could have and working on the problem that I cared most about, which was diversity in tech access to STEM. So if it's a company with like three people in it, how did you find out about it? So I was sitting around wondering what I wanted to do with my life. And my friend Vanessa happened to be there. And she said, and she was basically running me. And I I think I had, because of my interest in fairness in the world, I care a lot about hiring almost by definition, right? Mm -hmm. Who gets hired and who doesn't is how you both affect diversity and also affect fairness in the industry. Mm -hmm. And so it's a huge, it's a huge lever. It's, uh, 
hugely undervalued. And so my friend was basically like challenging me to like do the hard thing, right? She was like, well, maybe you want to be a recruiter. And so she was basically pushing me to do a lot of different, uh, think about a lot of different business functions. And then I was like, maybe. And so she told me to look into, she had seen our CEO give a talk at the Grace Hopper conference like a year before and told me to contact this person. Then I looked her up on LinkedIn, found a mutual connection, got my friend to introduce me to her nice. just to get coffee, no intention of working for her. And that's ultimately what got me the job. Interesting. That, um, yeah, so we a lot uh, of random, yeah, of yeah, chance, like that, but also a lot the, of hustle. The go through LinkedIn, that was a strategy. Uh, RJ, who puts together all our sound here on the podcast, used to come into Art of Problem Solving, saw a listing connected through LinkedIn oh, to nice. somebody with a background that looked like his. It's a mm -hmm. good strategy. Um, yeah. But, well, I can talk about the pros and cons of LinkedIn when we get into hiring. But <laughs> I, I would like actually I would really like to hear that because we have sure. we have our own hiring uh, difficulties in finding finding people. But I'd like to talk a little bit. about. So you go into recruiting. Were you at all worried about the gender stereotype there? Because when I you know, you look around on LinkedIn or you look mm -hmm, around on any mm -hmm. company Web page and you look in their recruiting department. And mm -hmm. it's always a bunch of young women, right? Yeah, and that, yeah. And so there's the obvious kind of stereotype, oh, you're you're a woman, you should go into recruiting. Mm -hmm, Were mm -hmm. you worried about that? Yeah, so the first thing, so luckily I wasn't so much because I wasn't joining as a recruiter. I was joining as the head of our new business vertical. So that meant, uh, that meant a lot of marketing and a lot of sales. Mm -hmm. So it was... It was business and not so much recruiting itself, right? And I think that the part that did worry me about gender stereotypes was leaving engineering, leaving, right? Yeah. So I think that there was there were so many people as I was leaving my first job that were telling me, you're a woman leaving engineering. This is a crisis. What is happening? Like, oh my God, like, you know, hold the phone. Don't do like so. Right. And I think that ultimately uh, my vision for the world is where women can do whatever they want to do, right? Mm -hmm. I think what bothers me about, about engineering, what bothers me about math and the gender disparities there are that there are women that want to do these things that are not doing these things. And, but I think it's totally, I mean, it's the amount of attrition that we're seeing is obviously an indication of a larger problem but I think in my case, it was probably more of just, I was more excited about doing something else. And I think that the this idea of wanting to be that that girl, right? I was the top girl at, at New York State Math Counts and just still continuing to want to be that trailblazer ha pushed me to stay in academic math for a longer time than I probably would have done otherwise and maybe even uh, engineering itself. Okay. So you... How did your experience interviewing and then and then working as an engineer, how does that inform your interest in what you're doing now? Like, what are the things mm -hmm. you mentioned that there's this really complex problem in Silicon Valley that you didn't appreciate coming out of out of college? So you learn a lot about this problem in your first year, I, I presume, firsthand knowledge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How does that inform what you're trying to do now? A hundred percent. So I think that I... I noticed, so I think in some ways I'm extremely privileged and the privilege outweighs the, the lack of privilege, right? But mm -hmm. in, in other ways, I felt 
frustrated being one of few women, right? So, but on the other hand, I was at Harvard and all of the companies were there. So I was very privileged in that sense. I think that the problems that I felt when I was an undergraduate had more to do with uh, the fact that I saw classmates who, uh, at least in my slightly arrogant opinion, were less qualified and yet getting jobs in Silicon Valley. And I I had a ton of fear around these phone screen type interviews, right? Mm -hmm. The technical phone screen is basically, for context, you're writing code and talking on the phone at the same time and explaining your work. And so it's just this like terrifying hour of your life. And basically my confidence wasn't there. And as a result, I was getting too nervous and screwing it up, even though I was pretty good at algorithms. So I think that what happened was that I... I think in practice, actually, it was mostly just because the the right strategy is that you have to just practice these algorithmic problems. Like even though I knew, uh, even though I was one of the top people in my algorithms class, the types of problems that are in technical uh, technical phone screens are like their own class of algorithms problems. Right. Maybe like the first five percent of the curriculum, but you have to know how to like traverse you know, how to do like depth first search really easily and, and be able to like code that up. So there's just a lot of like really strange things about the technical phone screen. And so that made me feel like uh, that and the fear of being biased, uh, my interviewer being biased against me. So I had an experience where my, where I showed up for an on-campus interview um, with, a, with a company that and then the interviewer basically didn't understand that I was he was supposed to be interviewing me like so I like showed up at the place and I was like hi he's like hey (laughs) he's like still basically like looking waiting for his interviewee and and so I was like is this room 210 and he's like yeah and I was like I think I'm your interviewee and he's like oh okay and so it was just this like very strange experience and I definitely and well, I don't know. I think, uh, I think it's to be seen, right? But I think, I think it's to be seen basically the scale of how how much that how common that is, right? I'm not, I'm not sure how common that is. It was a weird experience, and mm-hmm. but I think that any in any case, it made me worry about my gender. It made me conscious about my gender during the interview. So interviewing IO is a technical interviewing platform where a you can practice, right? So you can get over those nerves. And how, B, mm-hmm. how does that practice yeah. work? And we'll yeah. get to B in a minute. But how does so, that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the practice is actually um, completely anonymous. So you log on to interviewing IO, and you're matched with an engineer, with a senior engineer from a place like Google or Facebook or Dropbox. These are individual engineers from these companies that are doing this in their off hours. Why? And Why are they doing this? Compensate them. Okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Yeah. So they're like freelancing for us. Mm-hmm. And basically we are giving out these high quality mock interviews for free. Mm-hmm. Why do we give it out for free? Because if you, if you do well on these interviews, then you're eligible to interview with companies that we work with. And so our philosophy is that technical interviews are a much, much better signal than a resume and a much fairer one at that. And that really appeals to my sense of fairness, right? It shouldn't matter whether or not you go to Harvard. It matters a lot more whether you can 
past these interviews. And also we help you get there, right? Because you have like two or three shots. Yeah. Uh, it's not like a one-shot phone screen. And that's, that's super important because I, I talk to a lot of my, my friends, a lot of them in the financial world. Talk, they talk about the difficulty of hiring and the fact that kids within certain demographics, usually from certain schools, they know a lot of the problems ahead of time and they've practiced mm. with a lot of similar problems. So for them to hire somebody from, you know, a not top mm -hmm. 15 university, uh, it, it's much harder for that person to get through those initial screens because the other people have been trained. They've been trained to get mm -hmm. through these sorts of puzzles mm -hmm. and all that sort of stuff. So this, mm -hmm. it's interesting you, you start with the practice. So what's B? Yeah. That was A, was you give them practice. Yeah, yeah. And then B is that it's, it's anonymous. So I think that just the fact that it's anonymous means that you don't have to worry about, about being stereotyped. And so note, the interviewer doesn't have access to your resume. They don't care where you went to college. They don't know where you went to college. They don't, they don't know your race. We've even experimented with voice modulation. We have a patent on voice modulation at technology, right? So it, it uh, so gender too, mm -hmm. and and all of these things, right? We're we're really just trying to mitigate bias in that screen. And I think that that's, and I think that that, uh, and just the fact that we're an open platform, right? So if you're if you're a student, no matter what college you go to, you go through the same process. Okay. And what what have you learned? I've learned a lot about why the system works the way it does. So I think it's this it's a it's an interesting problem in which like many prob like many unfair problems in the world. I don't think any individual actors are bad. So I don't blame recruiters for only going to Harvard, Stanford, MIT, I don't know, Carnegie Mellon like five yeah. schools, right? If you are a small startup, you have the budget to go to maybe five schools. And so going to, I think it's less a matter of, of training and more a matter of literally connecting these people because, um, and also like finding the top students at a state school is a time intensive exercise. Cause don't forget that software engineers, their time is worth a lot. So interviewing everybody that applies is really expensive right. for a company. And so that's where we see ourselves as coming into the system and taking on that giant cost of interviewing everybody. So we interview students, like we interview all of the students that apply. We have a short, like a, a short qualifying test, mm -hmm. but that's, you know, still test-based and not resume-based. And then, you know, you come on and we interview you. And then, so we're taking on that interviewing cost for all of the companies around and, and as we're, yeah what mm -hmm. portion of the kids uh, kids students uh, what portion of them get through each cut so you've got your you've got your written test or your programming test mm -hmm. that's not in person not a phone screen mm -hmm. how many of the students get through that i think the vast majority get through that okay. so and then, um, then, yeah and so that's next... really just like a quick like can you code are you right. at a baseline qualified type okay. of thing and be and because we're we're not checking we're not checking for are you a computer science student we're not checking for mm -hmm. any sort of credentials so that's just like a, a very basic like are you qualified thing okay. and then beyond that we uh, we have actually our algorithm for 
matching uh, for determining whether students get jobs access is super nerdy. It's it's based <laughs> on a chess. It's based on chess ranking mm -hmm. algorithms. So it's a modified version of, of ELO. I don't I, I don't even fully understand it, but basically the idea with it is that we're correcting for interview strictness. So. Oh, right. um, so because some interviewers might be stricter than others and mm -hmm. and what and we what's interesting about it is that in this case it's a two side it's so in chess you're playing somebody else but in this case you're you have one interviewer that might have interviewed several people so it's just right. it's a different situation we have something similar with our alchemists our online learning system cool. it's it's students versus the problems and it's mm -hmm. a similar kind of thing yeah, yeah, I'd love to compare notes. I mean, I, I didn't design it, but yeah. yeah, that'd be cool. So so what portion of the people get through that second round thing? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so probably, um, honestly, I don't, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's, I'd say it's the, the cream of the crop. Okay, <laughs> so, but not, but not so. everyone that comes to you gets an interview with whatever companies that you're, you're working with. Right, and that's by design. So the mm -hmm. idea is that the is that I mean, forget about the initial test. That's kind of irrelevant. That's just a mm -hmm. side note. Basically, everyone that signs up gets these high quality mock interviews, and that's that's the value, right? Okay. The and then getting interviews with companies is a huge is a huge bonus, right? Mm -hmm. Don't get me wrong, but that's um, that's we you know being so, a hiring company, we have to be a little bit selective about who we, who we let on. Right. So when you interview, I'm, I'm sorry, when you advertise at one of these universities that you're targeting, you're advertising the practice. Is that how you're getting the students onto the system? Yes, but we're not even advertising at universities. We're not going to career fairs. We're not mm -hmm. going to Harvard. We're not going to Stanford. We're just putting the word out to students. How, how do you get the kid at San Jose mm -hmm. State Mm -hmm. Or uh, San Jose State, you can just drive over there. Uh, San Diego State. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. So we have a pretty um, large online presence. So our mm -hmm. blog, a lot of our blog posts make it towards the top of Hacker News. So I wrote a blog post about this. Actually, you can if you go to Interviewing IO and click mm -hmm. on the blog, you can. Um, there's a. It's called If You Care About Diversity, Stop Hiring from the Top Five Schools, mm -hmm. and that that post was, I think number three or number two on Hacker News for like a day. So Hacker News then, is the um, is the like premier source of tech news. At the same time, a lot of it's also known for like having terrible gender politics, right? So I'm sure not a, not a lot of women are like reading Hacker News necessarily, especially those in college. So we do a lot of proactive outreach to especially to women, especially to minorities in every way we can, trying to attend conferences like the Grace Hopper conference is a collection of women in CS from across the country. So the only events that we'll attend are events that are cross college. We're never just going to go to one college. Right. Okay. So, how, so wide, how widely known are these reputation issues that you just kind of hinted at in, in the case of Hacker News? Like, I have no idea which companies are this way or that way, other than the you know small handful of things that percolate into the national news, and even those I kind of have my skepticism about sometimes. Um, but, Same. <laughs> but but like, is this something? Is there other places that people can go to see what these reputations? I mean, I guess you see a little bit of it in, in a place like Glassdoor, but this is a narrower thing uh, than Glassdoor might typically address. Yeah, absolutely. So there's if you're I remember I faced this problem, right? I was like, I, 
I want to, I don't want to work at Goog, Face, Microsoft. Like, I don't want to work at these, I don't want to work at a giant company. Where do I work? And there was a kind of, there was a very clear list of startups that were like in when I was a senior at Harvard. But what's really funny is that the group of startups differs. So like all the Harvard kids are going to Quora, whereas all the MIT kids are going to Dropbox. And like, so it's very much a reputational thing, as you as you mentioned, where the pe- the people in the class above you, right? Maybe like yeah. two kids go Quora, and then Quora becomes cool. And so I think there's actually a huge information gap as to which startups are doing really are doing really interesting work, and even more importantly, have a great culture around engineering, right? That's what you should look for. Do they have great engineering? Can you learn a lot? And so I think that it's hard to find and you have to ask the right questions and you have to be really diligent. A couple of lists, like if you're curious, if you're just looking for information, you can look at um, Hacker News, the the site I just mentioned has a who is hiring list. And also um, there's there's something called the breakout list for startups. But ultimately I think it's really hard to identify, especially if you're thinking like 10 people and under, it's just really hard to identify which right. startups are interesting. Right. I mean, imagine I'm, but imagine I'm a, a student in Montana. I'm not at Harvard. I can't ask the other kids mm-hmm. what's cool. Mm-hmm. I'm a student in Montana and I want to find out, you know, say, say I'm an African-American woman and mm-hmm. I code, I'm in Montana. Mm-hmm. How do I learn which of these companies have an environment that's going to be supportive rather than adversarial? Well, I think it's really, really hard for a several reasons so you know uh i'll address it one at a time right so first being in montana and a college student right like if you are not at harvard how are you supposed to know which companies are interesting a Mm -hmm. b which uh how do you get an interview at these companies and that is a huge obstacle for people not at the top like so every company has a list of target colleges whether or not they say they do they do and the list but the thing is that Google can afford to go to more colleges than a startup can. So, and they can afford to go through more resumes. So your best shot at an interview, if you're not using something like interviewing IO, is the Googles, the Microsofts, the Facebooks of the world, because they're more because they have more resources, right? They have more engineers. Whereas a startup is so bootstrapped they don't know what to do with this application. Um, right, but Google's also getting 50 times as many resumes. So the way that you can get noticed by a startup is if you have a personal connection. Okay. So if you can manage to, uh, actually you can try back to LinkedIn, you can try reaching out not to the recruiter, but writing a very personal and nice email to like an individual engineer or to someone mm-hmm. on the team or you know business function that you would actually want to join and then they can maybe talk to you give you some advice about applying and potentially ideally refer you just to vouch, the company. vouch so for you. it's all about networks and who you know which sucks and that's kind of the <laughs> that's kind of the reality right right and that's where so, the, the harvard privilege kicks in so i remember sophomore year i thought it was really unfair like i thought referrals were unfair so i didn't do it like I, I had my my parents knew some people in Silicon Valley and I was like, well, that's unfair. Just like, I just happened to be born to these parents. How is this fair? So I did not do that. And I applied to a lot of companies through their websites mm-hmm. and 
I did not get an internship. <laughs> I had a great time. Like I studied abroad in China instead, right. but like that strategy just did not work. So then I learned that you have to play within the system in order to change the system, right? Interesting. So what do you actually do? What did you do yesterday? <laughs> That's a great question. So, um, yeah, I am currently working on, on, I guess, market research. So, which is also like, what the heck does that mean? So <laughs> it's one of those things where you like, you, you picture like a guy in a suit really like doing nothing all day. So, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like what that actually means for me at Interviewing IO is, so as mentioned, I am in charge of the entire university program. So Interviewing IO started out as a resource for senior software engineers. Mm -hmm. And now we are open to students. Mm -hmm. um, student hiring is very seasonal. So another tip for you know the kid in Montana is to start really, really early, start in the fall. Spring mm -hmm. is too late. And so basically, I mean, not necessarily, but, um, but most of the companies are hiring in the fall. So because it's a seasonal business, it's currently the off season for me. And so there was this like super busy period. And now we're taking a step back, taking a breath and deciding what we should do for next year. And so as part of that, I've had to do what's called market sizing research. Mm -hmm. So basically, which size side of the market are you perfect. looking at here? Are you looking at the hiring side, the supply or the demand side when you're talking both, about this? Both. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, working backwards, right? Like how many computer science students are there in the mm -hmm. U.S., but also how many open positions are there? How many recruiters are there? How much money are they spending? And one of the interesting things that I've learned is that market sizing analysis is actually just a Fermi problem. Yeah. So, <laughs> it's one of those things where you're like yeah. making estimates. Like I remember at math camp, we would do these problems where it's like, what is the total size of like, or like, you know, how many truckers are there in the US? Like people do this and yeah. that's considered like, that's like something you learn in business school, except like having a math background probably makes me better at it. <laughs> and, uh, and so it's, it's actually, I mean, it's, it's nothing more than just multiplying a bunch of numbers together, but I have enjoyed sort of using that part of my brain lately. Yeah, well, the multiplying is the easy part. It's the picking yeah. the numbers that multiply. <laughs> That's the hard part. Exactly. I guess all I was trying to say is it's not yeah. actually super, super mathy, yeah. but cool to, to have numbers. Yeah. yeah. So, mm -hmm. so what did you do yesterday? <laughs> Yeah, so that's that's kind of what I was doing yesterday. It was uh, was working on a presentation where I was where I was sizing up the markets. Um, I think a more representative day to day for me looks like this. So um, I'm actually simultaneously doing two sides of the market. So I am interacting with students a lot. I get to fly around to conferences. I get to to I get to speak at conferences. I got to speak at the Women Engineers Conference Code Conference at Harvard, which was a ton of fun. I get to so I get to interact with students and that's what I I, and I really love that. And what we found was that students are so hungry for interview practice. Mm -hmm. So we've had almost no problem getting students. So at that point we were like, okay, well we have more students than we know what to do with. So then my job became all about sales. And so like so how can we basically get companies to get on board and also pay us money to um, to help hire students with our service? And right. so As a disclaimer, I should say Art of Problem Solving is one of those companies, and we have hired an engineer using your service who starts Absolutely. next uh, couple months. So. 
So that's been really cool yeah. too as well. And and I will say, Richard, that that selling to you was a very entertaining experience, but also the easiest, easiest. Sell, yeah. <laughs> easiest sell ever. Are you saying I'm an easy mark? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> uh. Yeah, I think you should. Uh, uh, yeah, no, I was like, um, what skepticism? Like, How about this? And you're like, yes. <laughs> I was like, okay, sales over. Yeah. <laughs> so, so selling has been really interesting too. Mm -hmm. What skepticism do you run into when you're talking to companies? Yeah, so I think that one of the mistakes that I made early on was that I thought that selling meant going in, being like really aggressive, being like, and just like te like telling people what they needed, right? Mm -hmm. So I would go in and I would just like, I would say this is what we do. This is yeah. everything that's wrong with the state of hiring. Like career fairs are a terrible idea. Why are you going to career fairs, right? And I, I didn't listen enough. Yeah. So basically what I've been doing for the last few months in the off season has been getting coffee with as many university recruiters as possible, right? Because I think I have empathy for the student side. I was a computer science student looking for a job recently, but I've never been a recruiter and I'm not a recruiter. So I think that having empathy for the very people that we're trying to sell to is so important and that is something that I'm working on every day. Interesting. So that's like starting from what do you need rather than what can we do? So a so one of the best salespersons, salespeople that I talked to from uh, my last company told me that the ideal sale is where you convince the person without really telling them a lot about what you do that they want your product because they have such a need so <laughs> your entire call is just asking them about their life and convincing them that uh, right. not even convincing them but just you know have, having them convince themselves that, that they have this problem and focusing on well what is the problem that we're solving right and so i think that one of the one of the mistakes that we made early on was just uh assuming that recruiters had a problem when and re like assuming that career fairs were always a bad idea, right? And then understanding, well, why do recruiters actually go to career fairs? Well, it's because it's not it's not just about students. It's also about branding to students and having you know a big logo with you know yeah. a, a crowd of students around your table. Oh, what's that over there? So it's right. Not even necessarily about the resumes at the end of the day yeah. that you get. It's just about putting your name out there and. As, like and making it a brand on that campus. Interesting. What have been the biggest surprises for you since you've been doing this? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that I, hmm. I mean, I definitely did not expect myself to be doing what I'm doing a year ago. So I think that the biggest shock was you know my job transition happened yeah. fairly quickly in fact I quit my job on a Thursday uh, I mean I let my last day was Thursday and I started my new job on a Friday it was like because as mentioned there's this like seasonality to it so I was basically like thrown in um you know given a lot of responsibility and given a lot of trust mm -hmm. and as someone who had never done sales right I was <laughs> doing quite a lot and uh and so I think that the um the thing that I guess most surprises me is that I am doing what I've, what I thought I would not be doing for a long time. Like in, in I, terms of your responsibility and having an impact, you mean not in terms of what are the tactics and skills that you're using? 
Exactly. So I think that I have, so sometimes uh, just at the beginning, especially what surprised me was just how much agency I had and how much trust the founders had in my intuition. And, and in my, they thought I was, you know, they basically thought that I was, hopefully still think that I'm just a really <laughs> smart, really driven person that is going to hustle. And that's what they saw in me were those attributes and it, and the skills didn't even matter at that point. That's cool. So how has this shifted your self-identity? You go back a year ago, you're like, in a year, I'm definitely going to be doing math and I'm going to be writing code. And here you are uh, essentially kind of writing a, a fragment of a business plan. You're selling on both sides of the market. Mm -hmm. You're not doing a whole lot of math. You're not writing a whole lot of code. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that self-identify, I don't, self-identifying as a salesperson feels kind of gross to me. I'm like, ooh, is that <laughs> who I've become? I think that one of the, the things that I like least about it is that at least some sales is um, a little bit relationship driven. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I don't like about my job is that when I meet someone, um, you know, even at a social event at a party, I, if the, um, I feel the need to just expand my network for the sake of expanding my network. And so it blends the personal with the business. And, um, I think that there are ways to keep it separate, but, um, the ways in which, so I think that I've had to but I think what I've realized is that when you're asking somebody for something, when you're asking, when you're trying to sell to somebody, that doesn't have to be gross. I think that mm -hmm. math people think that all sales is gross and that I've been trained to, to feel that way as a math person, right? right. But I think that, that I've realized, like, I used to feel so uncomfortable, right, asking a friend, like, asking you, mm -hmm. uh, well, you came to me, so that was, <laughs> again, easiest sale ever. Yeah. But, you know, asking asking somebody that I admire and care about as a friend for a business, like uh, favor, right? Like, Hey, can you send this to your boss? But I think that, I think that if you ask in the right way, it's, it's not an issue, right? Cause ultimately sometimes they're like, thank you. Like you're helping us. Right. I mean, that, yeah, that's... Least, they'll say politely no. Right. Yeah. And that's when you're going to be your most successful, right? Is when you're, mm -hmm. when you're helping them. Mm -hmm. um, but it does make relationships sometimes feel transactional. Interesting. So that's one of the things about friendship in Silicon Valley, right? You never know who you're going to want to refer to your company, like, even if you're not a salesperson. It's just, it's very relationship driven. Has it Maybe been... that's just how work is. Yeah, but... <laughs> I think uh, it might, it might be. Has it been hard to let go of that identity uh, of being uh, an engineer? So I think that, yes, yeah, so you, so you mentioned that there was like, that I used to be doing code and math. I actually disagree with that. I don't feel like code is that mathy. And so I think that the problem is that I love math, mm -hmm. but I'm not sure that I loved being an engineer. I feel like that was sort of a crappy middle ground between interests that I have, right? What is what I like about sales is like um, really interact, or I don't know that I necessarily like sales in itself. What I like about selling at interviewing IO is like making the change that I want to see in the world happen and actually interacting with those users. What I like about math is that it's, well, that's a whole other topic, but I, I you know, it's, it's great. It's cool. But I think that engine, I think that coding to me was neither of those things. It was, it was a tool to affect the world and you found a better way to do it. Yeah. I think that, 
or I don't even know for you. Yeah. I, yeah, I just don't think that coding was the, was the thing that I necessarily felt I wanted to do. And, um, I, I don't know. I think I was fine at it, but I don't think I was that excited about it. And so, yeah, when I, when I transitioned, I definitely don't feel like I've looked back, but I do think that it's weird to, I mean, in Silicon Valley, there's like this kind of like hierarchy of prestige. And so people think I'm absolutely insane for going from being an engineer to, to sales, even though the best salespeople make way more money than the CEO sometimes. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think it really just depends on, uh, on what you're doing. But the fact that like engineers are these like prized, like, you know, like highest thing you could do in Silicon Valley, people are like, why on earth did you give that up? So I think I get a lot of that from other people and it's hard to, it's hard for me to not care what other people think, but I think having a good internal sense of this is what I'm doing and, and I'm so happy to be doing it is what gets me through that. So looking forward, you're happy where you are. Mm -hmm. How do you, how do you look at your targets going forward? That's a great question. So I think that one of the things that I've explored, both with my first company, Clever, which is an education tech company, and now with interviewing IO, is this idea of a social business or a social entrepreneurship, whatever you want to call it, right? So a business that also is having the having change affected in the world. And I think that uh, so I mentioned that the reason why I went to Silicon Valley was because I wanted to change it, right? <laughs> I wanted to be, and so I don't think that I am super rah-rah Silicon Valley. Uh, in fact, I'm kind of the opposite. And so I think that a lot of Silicon Valley companies claim to be changing the world. And yet, um, you know, they're, dry, they're doing dry cleaning for like the, uh, I don't know. They're like, yeah. Uh, it's actually funny because during the gold rush in San Francisco, a lot of the people that made the most money were the people that yeah. were doing laundry of the people that were mining for gold, which is a very funny analogy. Now, when you think about the companies that are making the most money are the B2B companies that are doing the laundry of the engineers for the other companies. So <laughs> it's uh, it's pretty ridiculous. I think that the just the amount of kind of money that's just moving around in a circle, right? The amount of VC money that's moving around in a circle. And I think that ultimately it's, um, yeah, I think there's a, I think there are a lot of, a lot, a lot of problems in the world and not a lot of them are being tackled by Silicon Valley companies. So I think that looking forward, I think that I'm learning incredibly valuable skills. And I think that interviewing IO is an exception, right? I think that we are solving a real problem of access of meritocracy mm -hmm. of diversity in how you get a job in tech. But I also, and so I can see myself there for, you know, for the foreseeable future. But if I, you know, I, th I do think that, um, yeah, just going back to this idea of a social business, I think I'm, I'm not sure whether business, generally speaking, is the best way to solve social problems. I, I think it's very, I think it's up for grabs, or at least Silicon Valley style businesses. So Richard, one of the things that I actually really admire about you and the art of problem solving is that the art of problem solving was built not by raising money from venture capitalists. So yeah. the thing is that as soon as you raise money from venture capitalists in Silicon Valley, the idea is the focus is on, can you be a billion dollar company? That is the criteria that venture capitalists use when they evaluate you. And then you're supposed to scale like this, right? So you're, mm -hmm. you're 
uh, revenue is supposed to just go up and up and up like in an exponential way. Mm -hmm. And I think that that does not necessarily reflect the way that social uh, social missions should scale necessarily. Like I think that scale is super important, but maybe you're scaling too fast. Maybe you're losing your mission in the process. And so I think that one of the things that I most admire about about the way that you've built the art of problem solving is that it's a, it's a company that's very clearly providing people value and solving a problem, right? I think it's solving a problem of access to math education, to higher math education in around the country. I think that before the art of problem solving, my dad was, my dad and me and you, I think actually like a long time ago, we're chatting about how the New York City math team would always win the um, Arbel contest like 20 years ago. But now it's a toss-up who will win, and yeah, yeah unfortunately, uh, but, <laughs> but actually, fortunately, right? Because yeah. basically, it's it's now a lot, uh, and I hate this word because it's a Silicon Valley buzzword. But now yeah. it's democratized, right? Education yeah. is, uh, you know, access to the the math contest world is is more democratized right. thanks to AOPS, and it, so I think it's so important. Well, well, thank you. It's more democratized geographically. It's we still have some work to do to get it more democratized across uh, demographics, but <laughs> that's a story for another day. Yeah, well, I think that's so interesting. I think that interview IO, we we talk um, there. So our mission is around meritocracy, but mm-hmm. we're our, especially with our university program and and across the board, but university program just because I lead it and I care so much about diversity, right? Diversity has become kind of front and center with our university program. And I think that it's interesting because I don't think that they're at odds, but I think that it's uh, a lot of folks in the diversity space have forgotten about the idea of meritocracy or don't like that term. And then a lot of people who think about meritocracy think that they're just going to automatically make it meritocratic by making it an open system. Right. So that there's a balance. Yeah, and I think that balance means you have to start earlier and earlier. And that's that's mm-hmm. one of the things we're working on, why we went to elementary school. Uh, BEAM, our, our nonprofit work is, you know, we're aiming earlier there. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we're doing some outreach in our academies to reach demographics mm-hmm. that are not typically involved in, in high-level mathematics mm-hmm. because they don't have access, the ac- sort of access you did when you just went to the next room and said, hey, Dad, mm-hmm. I want to play mm-hmm. some board. Give me a problem. <laughs> And Beam is also a great example of an organization yeah. that is is scaling in in a in a, it's scaling a lot, but in a way that is deliberate. Uh, tra- tractable, yeah, and yeah. deliberate, right? Yeah. I think Dan deliberately did not scale yeah. for to LA for a while until it until it felt right. Yeah, well, some of that some of that reason was financial, but <laughs> like Beam, <laughs> Beam, anybody out there that wants to wants to help reach. Uh, underprivileged students and get them involved in advanced mathematics yeah give me a call well as, <laughs> as a, well, as a I, I, the way he told it to me is also like he wants to make sure that he gets the right formula right yeah. and then like he wants you know you you focus on how much you're helping the kid and then you you expand it it doesn't doesn't need to be this huge thing right away that's right and i firmly believe that he's gonna scale it and it's going to take over the world, but maybe just not right away. That that will be fantastic. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Um, as a wrap up, if people want to hear more from you, where can they find more of your work? And is there anything you'd like to to share with our audience? Absolutely. So, I I've written on Medium. So mm-hmm. if you go to Medium and search my name, it's probably medium.com/slash 
Mina Bopana. And, uh, and also if you, uh, so that's like my personal blog. I've also written for my company's blog and we write a lot of about hiring. So hiring and data insights, right. Relating to hiring and, and how the system is broken, kind of what I was alluding to. So for that, you can check out interviewing.io and and click on the blog. And, um, yeah, I think in, I think to sum up, I think that my path has been really weird and, but those, but again, the moments where I've done the thing that is less, uh, like less prestigious have actually worked out in my favor, like, and, and ultimately gotten me things like this podcast or (laughs) a conference. Right. And so I think that it makes you more unique. So don't be afraid to go do something that makes you more unique because ultimately that's what the world needs more of. And so don't be afraid to just follow your interests, even if you don't think they're going to go anywhere. Right. I never thought that (laughs) diversity, I never thought that diversity in tech could be a career. Excellent. Well, I can obviously empathize having left the trading career uh, to start -hmm. writing math books. So anyway, yeah, my guest today has been Mina Bopana. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Aftermath. You can find show notes for this and other episodes on our website at aops.com slash aftermath. We want more people to discover this podcast, so if you like this episode, please take a moment to share it with others you think will enjoy it. I'm Richard Russick. See you next time. Aftermath is brought to you by Art of Problem Solving, through which we've had the opportunity to work with hundreds of thousands of eager math students around the world. Our textbooks, online school, in-person learning centers, and various online resources empower students to develop the skills they'll need for success at top-tier universities and in internationally competitive careers. Come check us out at aops.com.